good morning, everybody. You have joined me, Kevin Stevenson, here on I Don't Care on Market Scale Radio. Uh, gotta admit, today I'm really excited, as I always am for our guests, but today I'm especially excited to welcome Dr. Summer Knight uh, to the program. Uh, Dr. Knight is unbelievably accomplished. Uh, currently, she's the Managing Director for Life Sciences and Healthcare Practice at Deloitte. And, uh, but she has got a, just a wonderful background. And uh, uh, we're going to talk about her book that will be coming out in the next week or so uh, that I had the opportunity to read uh, a little bit uh, of that in advance. And uh, her passion, her, her writing is just tremendous. So Dr. Knight, thanks so much for joining me here on I Don't Care. Oh, Kevin, it's such a pleasure, and um, I'm super excited about, about the conversation. So thanks for inviting me. Yeah, me too. Me too. I'm really excited to, to hear about. You've, got, you've had an incredibly diverse uh, career. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about that. You were, uh, if I'm not mistaken, you were an ER physician. Is that correct in, the, in your early life? I actually started out my career as a firefighter paramedic. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah. And then, and I never had thought that um, being a doctor was actually in the cards for me. Um, but after bringing patients into the emergency room and, um, you know, and of course working on them in the ambulance and working, working in the emergency room, um, that dream, I, I started to dream that dream more and in uh, that become a reality in my life. That's, that's just tremendous. You know, I've known a couple of physicians actually who have taken that career path and uh, I love their stories and I love the background that they bring to medicine from being really, you know, on that, you know, obviously physicians are on the front line, but when you start talking about EMS and firefighters, wow, that's some serious front line. So you, <laughs> you went from that and then you were the chief medical officer for the state of Florida. Talk a little bit about that. That's got to be well, you know, getting into that political side of healthcare. Well, th thanks for asking about it. Um, so I did practice medicine for quite some time. Mm -hmm. And as we were solving health issues, um, health disparities in our community, I began to spend more and more time interacting with the state government to mm -hmm. solve some big problems that were happening in the state. And based on those interactions, when they needed a new chief medical officer, I became one of the, one of the number the, the folks that they tapped, and becoming chief medical officer for the state of Florida gave me a very different um, vantage point than um, I had when I was practicing medicine. Um, it really helped me uh, to better understand how impactful we can be in uh, helping fragile citizens in order to bring them the right mix of mm -hmm. healthcare and social services um, to really humanize their situation and to be able to solve some pretty significant problems. Mm -hmm. And then also understanding how all the stakeholders in the ecosystem work. Um, that was uh, a really big learning for me. And then the regulatory piece mm -hmm. on how our, how our government is focused on trying to balance budgets and at the same time really care for the citizens and all the different and varied um, perspectives that are being brought to solving healthcare issues. So super challenging space, 
but very, very satisfying to participate in. I'm sure, yeah, that uh, I, I have a real heart for population health as well. And, and you certainly were living that. So then you transitioned into, uh, into the uh, managed care space and, and I'm sure you were able to, to take your uh, direct uh, medical experience and then your uh, experience with the state into Cigna uh, uh, and Aetna both. Uh, talk just a little bit about your experience there because I start seeing an entrepreneurial bent there. I did. So I actually, before I got there, I did um, uh, start my first digital health company. Um, that was an exciting venture um, mm -hmm. because I, I was a doctor who had, I don't think at the time I even um, uh, had a, had had understood about programming or um, a lot of the intricacies around computers, but I knew that there was a different way that we could um, that we could solve care problems, mm -hmm. and I knew that technology could be in that answer. And so the focus of that of the my first digital health company was really to assure that. Um, again, fragile citizens were getting the right level of care in the community so it would keep them out of nursing homes and ho in hospitals um, and assisted living facilities um, at the right time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so really to solve a so another social uh, health-related issue. Um, insert a couple of companies in that type of vein. And then um, was invited uh, in the journey to join um, Cigna and became their national medical executive. So worked on solving um, with, with their large employers, their for Fortune 50, Fortune 100 employers, really solving um, population health um, issues and using innovation to do that. Mm -hmm. And then was invited over, um, over to um, be the head of strategy for the private equity organization that Aetna, um, that Aetna had wholly owned at the time called Healthagen. Mm -hmm. And um, we had 13 businesses at the time that I was there, which varied from um, care management, um, digital health companies, new apps um, that were very cutting edge. So a very exciting time with a very innovative um, group of folks. And so those, all of those experiences, so grateful for in the, and the amazing people that were around that in innovating for healthcare. Okay. So I'm going to jump over a very significant piece of your life. And let's talk briefly about your, what you were doing now at Deloitte. But then I want to come back to, our, to the meat of our interview today. So talk a little bit about what you do at Deloitte. Uh, so at Deloitte, I am, as you mentioned, I'm the managing director for uh, Deloitte's life sciences and healthcare practice. Mm -hmm. And in that role, uh, I focus on humanizing healthcare. So all of the different things that, um, that, that increase our ability to be more humanized in our approach in healthcare. Mm -hmm. And so a perspective is around really thinking about the patient at the top of the pyramid rather than the traditional way that we think about, uh, we talk about um, consumer-centric care. Mm -hmm. um, I'm, I'm actually talking about putting them at the top of the, the pyramid and not calling them patients anymore, but actually, you know, our vernacular is shifting to consumers, healthcare consumers sure. and customers, but even thinking about them as clients. Mm -hmm. um, because I think that really elevates the way we respect and we um, incorporate an individual's 
perspectives, preferences, their natural support network of family, friends, and volunteers into their entire care experience. So, um, so in, that, in that work, um, all the areas that touch that the human being is the areas that I like to focus on. Okay, me too. I've got, I enjoy uh, the patient experience side and, and really working with patients and families to make sure that they are, uh, they're cared for in the, in the best possible way that we can. So, as I said, I skipped over a very significant time of your life. And, and uh, I, as I, I mentioned your book, uh, Humanizing Healthcare, a wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, I've Thank had a you. chance to read a, a great deal of it. But let's talk about that. Uh, and let's talk about, you know, let's talk about the, the journey that you had with your son's illness. Well, um, so we are on a, what I call a movement of humanizing healthcare. Mm -hmm. And the, the perspective is really helping the entire industry. So the life sciences and healthcare, health plan, health provider, um, medical devices, all the associated organizations to really consider using humanizing healthcare as our collective North Star. And when we do that, that we can really align to, um, to solving problems across the industry in a very meaningful way. Um, and so to, to, to jump over to my experience with mm -hmm. my son, um, through my experience in caring for patients and, um, and being a patient myself, um, I, I already had a significant passion around this topic. And then when my, my youngest child became ill with terminal cancer, our experience, even though I'm a, a physician and in a, in a, in a, in a, a committed, very committed, they used to call me wolf mama, um, <laughs> <laughs> parent, um, there was significant challenges and barriers to getting him um, compassionate care. And um, to the point where I never left his bedside, um, and, and many parents wouldn't, right. um, but you know, we were on a, a full year journey. We didn't know that that was all of the journey that we were on. Um, and that experience made me uh, really amped up the passion around humanizing healthcare. It made it very, very personal. Um, and for example, he would share with, with me the things that I think many of uh, clinicians might take for granted when, they, when somebody shows up in their office, um, but he wanted to be asked to be touched. Mm -hmm. And instead oftentimes um, the, the staff, because of protocol, if he wasn't immediately putting out his arm for blood pressure, they would grab his arm and pull it. Mm -hmm. And um, and just those little tiny things began to build up for him. And, you know, he would explain to me that he would feel assaulted by these little tiny things. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and that became just a very personal point that he would make to the clinicians to try to help them to understand um, how vulnerable he was in his current situation, even if he was feeling okay at the time, being placed in that patient mode sure. really, really made him feel um, vulnerable and, and frightened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you couple that with, with his age, uh, 13 at the time, uh, if I remember correctly, yes. and, and being faced with your own mortality, Lots of things, lots of emotions, I'm sure, around him and you. I mean, you know, I, 
I'm not a clinician. Uh, you know, I, I jokingly say I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Um, <laughs> you do a good job. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, thanks. But, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a blessing and a curse in the fact that we do know healthcare, but we do know healthcare and we know what happens and we know what's going on behind the scenes. And so that frustration level certainly can set in, you know, as, as a parent uh, mm. with a child, you know, dealing with all of this. So, you know, you talk a lot about humanizing healthcare and you talk about compassionate care, which, you know, you're speaking to my heart now, but when did it change? You know, we, we have in this, in our mindset, good old Dr. Welby. And, and back in the day, you know, all the physicians that we saw on TV that, you know, were so compassionate and made the house calls. I, I have the feeling I know your answer, but what changed? Um, so what changed are, when you're saying what changed, are you saying what changed in our ecosystem? Or are you, yeah. you saying what changed for me? Okay, got it. What changed in the ecosystem and for <laughs> you too. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that if we asked, asked um, our fellow clinicians, they would say it's multifactorial. Um, the, you know, um, delivering medicine used to be a very cottage industry. Mm -hmm. um, there would be the, you know, the community doctor and um, they would know everybody and um, they were just part of the fabric of the community. And because of population growth and because of the growth of technology and the higher cost that inherently um, has evolved, um, we've increased our stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And those stakeholders now have a very important part to play in the ecosystem. Um, and so, you know, I think some people think about different stakeholders as being the enemy in, in the chain. I don't look at it that way, um, but, but with those stakeholders causes a significant increase in friction and mm -hmm. barriers and challenges um, for fluidity in that care model. For clinicians themselves, they are also measured. Um, you know, they're, they have to adhere to, um, to, to, ma to, to making these metrics, um, which can really decrease the ability to spend time with people. Sure. And my experience is, is that I, I've, I've had a conversation when, you know, with one of my clients and we've gone through everything that I thought that they wanted to talk about. And just as I'm putting my hand on the door, to leave the room, it's mm -hmm. Dr. Knight, there's one more thing. And the ability to pause and turn on your heel and give that, that individual the attention for that one more thing that's probably the real reason why they showed up is mm -hmm. absolutely challenging, if not impossible today. And so we've, we've taken out the ability to, to have that flexibility and to really be able to share that compassion. Um, and docs will talk about that that's from electronic health records because they have to have computers in place, mm -hmm. all other things. But I think it's a very um, multifactorial. And what we talk about in the book is how do we solve that? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, you know, that, that's, what I'm, that's what I'm looking to. You know. But you're talking about the compassionate side of healthcare, humanizing healthcare. Talk a little bit about what you did to develop your your support network, your care team uh, during your son's journey. I found that fascinating. 
Yeah, and so that was also a huge, the huge shift I was asking of you, <laughs> um, if that was what you meant, because that that was a huge aha. Mm -hmm. um, before my son had become sick, um, although I have a, a, a mosaic family and I'm outwardly social, I've always been very private in mm -hmm. many ways. When my son became ill, um, two days into it, uh, in, into the magnitude of what it could be, we still hadn't identified his problem at the time. I was sending a note to the women who I play basketball on Saturday saying uh, it was four in the morning and we usually get together around eight. And I sent them a note to say, I won't be showing up today. And then I just wrote a heart-wrenching letter about my absolute terror and my son was sleeping in the bed next, you know, in, in the bed next to me as I was writing this, but I couldn't sleep because I just didn't know what was going on. Sure. And I felt so, uh, I, I, I felt so powerless. And from there, the outpour of support was so significant that it became a problem unto itself. Mm. <laughs> and not only did the women on my basketball team want to help, but it just continued to grow and grow and grow where people were reaching out to say, you know, they were calling, texting, emailing, mm -hmm. trying to social media <laughs> um, wow. on how they could be helpful. And it was overwhelming until I realized that this was a free army of my natural support network of family, friends, and, and volunteers could become a free army to support my, my son, myself, mm -hmm. our family, in being able to get through this. And so through the love that they sent over, and some of these people I had not even met, they heard of us, they knew maybe a, a family member, they knew a, a neighbor who knew us. The outpouring was so significant that it just made me begin to open up, even during the most horrifying time mm -hmm. of my life, um, to really begin to share. And through that, this community came around. We built a digital care activation platform where we were all able to share information. The clinical team was able to share information. We were able to keep everyone updated and they mobilized to help us. For example, um, my daughter was making it to her sport activities, even though, even when my son and I were caught in a clinic because he was just so too sick to, to leave because of an, an adverse of, of, um, reaction he had had to a medication. Mm -hmm. um, there was always a hot meal on our, on, our, mm. on our table. And even what brought one of the doctors to tears is when she was going through a very complex procedure that he was to get that required um, caution from all, the, all of the you know, family and friends, she was stunned that we had been able to deck up in this system all of the information she wanted to share before the conference that there was 38 of us um, either in front of us or in front of her in person or on a, on a virtual call, a virtual video call, and that we were so well organized because of the processes that we had put in place. And she said she'd never seen a family and community mobilize the way that we had been able to do so. And she said she had never thought that she would ever see that in her life. And that was just, you know, so spectacular. Yeah. I mean, what you were able to do, and, and again, you know, reading that account was just unbelievably touching to me. Yeah. You, know, you still got some pushback, didn't you? 
Oh, yes, there was um, many of the doctors that did not want to be on um, on the system. It, we were decking up um, medical, um, my son's medical information there. And they were, they were hesitant. Um, they would use excuses around a HIPAA compliance. Well, the system was HIPAA compliant. Um, they were concerned, I think, about opening them up to opening themselves up to greater scrutiny from the community. Right. Um, and I can understand the concern about that, but by and large, as physicians, our our actions are constantly being reconsidered by our clients and their families and being more open about the plan actually allows the community to to work together but also to give some feedback because sometimes plans are created with a very narrow view and not understanding everything that's uh, occurring in an individual's lives and so um, family and friends can actually be super helpful on um, on interacting with the clinical team in a way that doesn't overburden um, the clinician. And that was the third um, big pushback that we had heard about why they didn't want to um, be on, on, on the system. But the system was able to actually break a significant barrier, which is physician to physician in different healthcare systems communicating together, which was phenomenal and is, uh, is, is a very rare occurrence today. Yeah, very true, very true. Well, thanks so much for sharing, you know, that part of your journey. Uh, again, it speaks back to, to, you know, the humanizing healthcare. So how, um, how can humanizing healthcare really make healthcare more effective? Uh, you know, again, we're talking about effective from the patient experience standpoint, from the qualitative standpoint, from the cost standpoint, what what do you see? Um, what do you see the humanization really? How how do you see that impacting those areas? Yes, so a lot of people think, well, is this humanizing healthcare something soft, mushy, compassionate, lovey? And it is, mm -hmm. and it also brings significant value. And so we have gone through and evaluated all of the ways that, I shouldn't say all of them, I would say a majority of the ways that, um, that, that really incorporating that natural support network of family, friends, and volunteers, creating therapeutic alliances, which is the key to humanizing healthcare, which is creating, um, creating a longitudinal relationship built on trust with the focus of optimizing uh, health, whether or not one has a chronic condition or disability, mm -hmm. and leveraging that free army and all becoming, instead of it, the clinical team versus the home team, becoming one team. Right. And that, and, and we know that the majority of healthcare costs are actually originating out of, for example, primary care, where all those referrals are made to all the different special to, uh, mm -hmm. specialists, all the other technologies. And that when we can have a more streamlined approach and a better communication pattern um, and enlist the consumer in making decisions, that all of the focus begins to become streamlined and people are actually cost conscious and thoughtful mm -hmm. about choices when they're incorporated and educated into that process. 
So we've looked at all of those drivers and in humanizing healthcare is actually good business. Good. Absolutely. So, so how has the coronavirus reinforced the urgency to humanize healthcare? I'm gl- I love that you asked that question. So when I originally was researching this before my son even became ill, mm-hmm. um, uh, I had identified three key drivers that were changing healthcare. So regulatory, consumerism, technology, mm-hmm. and those were leading to seven um, transformative healthcare trends. And then came COVID. So we had to change it to three plus one, which was the, the uninvited guest that, as we all know, has created significant devastation mm-hmm. and has also shined, shown a spotlight into the healthcare system. And to share with all of us, um, wide open, all of the challenges that we have in the healthcare system. It's also forced us to begin to use virtual visits Mm -hmm. uh, in other use cases, having conversations like we're having over using Zoom instead of being in person. And so it's really an accelerant, a catalyst, uh, because I think many people were thinking, for example, hospital home, we wouldn't see that for 10 to 15 years the way we were going. And now <laughs> uh, we're seeing so many of these healthcare systems standing right. up, these types of systems. Mm-hmm. So it's really an amazing catalyst in many ways. And it's also forced very um, interesting partnerships um, across different siloed systems and even competitors to begin to solve these problems. So, um, so a terrible situation happened to us globally with some very positive outcomes mm-hmm. in the long run. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so the proceeds of your book, you're, you're donating those to uh, a project, One Humankind. Talk yes. to us about that. What's the mission of that? Yeah, so One Humankind, the donations um, are going in order to really focus on health equities. One Humankind is focused on mosaic families of which I'm from and also created in my own life with Nicholas and the rest of my family. And um, so we were very proud of it. um, And the the focus will be around around, uh, using humanizing healthcare in that approach and how we can really begin to address health equities, which is a major issue, as we all can agree in this country and globally. Right. Okay, so, so last question. You've, you have presented a very compelling argument for humanizing healthcare. How can, how can my viewers and listeners, you know, how can they join you in this mission? Oh, thank you so much for asking. That is so kind. So we are setting up um, this as a movement. Um, so we, you know, we've talked about a book, but this is way more than a book. This mm-hmm. is about a movement, and it's about really bringing, um, creating this North Star for different stakeholders in the life sciences and healthcare ecosystem. And I would even challenge to say beyond now that um, now that many more areas are really actively talking about healthcare. Mm-hmm. And it's about us becoming, coming together and really demanding of ourselves for us who are in the healthcare system. Um, you know, I work with so many leaders, CEOs, um, heads of organizations, um, people who drive the operations and the consumer experience and really demanding of ourselves 
and also of consumers de demanding of the health healthcare ecosystem to humanize healthcare mm -hmm. and that we won't accept anything less and that we all should have a very preference-driven, thoughtful experience. Because when any of us go into healthcare, whether it's, it's, it's oneself, it's one's loved one, like I experienced with Nicholas, um, or a neighbor, you're going into the healthcare system very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. It's not because you feel great. You're not going well, to go so. shopping. <laughs> sure. And so it's incumbent upon us to really think how we can activate consumers and help them to be part of that decision-making and really honor people as clients. And that requires systematic change in how we, on our culture, and how we set up our operations and how we digitize these organizations so that we have a holistic experience. Okay, very good. Dr. Summer Knight, Managing Director at Deloitte, author of Humanizing Healthcare that's gonna be coming out very soon within the next couple of weeks. Thanks so much for joining me here on I Don't Care. It's been just a distinct pleasure. Uh, again, hearing your journey with your son and your journey throughout uh, developing this book and, and your career. Uh, so look for it. I would love to have you back on at a later date and, and talk further about this incredibly uh, insightful topic. So, so listeners, viewers, we've uh, ended yet another uh, episode here of uh, I Don't Care with me, Kevin Stevenson. Uh, you know how to access us, Market Scale Radio, every Friday morning at 930 Central or on Spotify or iTunes. It's dropped pretty soon thereafter. You know that. And I'll end today's podcast as I always do. If you haven't subscribed yet, why not? This is Kevin Stevenson. We'll talk to you again next week. Bye.